Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by John Stark to talk with him about his most recent book, The Secret Place of Thunder, Trading Our Needs to Be Noticed for a, li- for a Hidden Life with Christ. And we're going to get into, you know, the title and, and, you know, just all of that here in just a few minutes in my conversation with him. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things. The first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to talk about things and learn from things that can sometimes be difficult to talk about. And not necessarily to, you know, spout our opinion, but just to continue to learn and grow. Because we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them completely. We may only agree with them, you know, 8%, but we can learn from them. And maybe how they handle the other 92%, maybe we can learn how to handle just how they deal with that stuff from them. The point is, is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from everything and from anything, whether that's something serious or something that is just, we might call it dumb, or maybe it's just fun, whatever it is. We believe that we can learn something from everything. And we do this because, you know, at least I do this because someone did that for me. And, you know, for me, I want to return the favor and I want to pass it on to the next generation. And sometimes that means dealing with very difficult subjects and wrestling through them. And that's what we're going to talk about today is dealing with this idea of how do you handle notoriety and and finding your worth from what you do and how do you how do you handle that and identity and so much more. And, you know, we're going to jump into that conversation here in just a second, but let me tell you about, um, I'm going to tell you about John, but first also, if you've been listening for a while, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I give you all the, the different things that I am currently learning from and learning about as well. And that comes out, um, about once a week and, you know, working on get the life has just been a little bit crazy. And so haven't been as productive with it as I would hope, but I also feel like that kind of goes back to just what this whole conversation is going to be about with John. So let me tell you a little bit about John and then we will go into the conversation. So John Stark is grew up, he grew up in the Midwest, but has lived in Arizona, South Carolina, Kentucky, and now lives in New York City with his wife, Jenna, and their four children. And he pastors Apostles Church Uptown in manhattan he has also written for christianity today as well as other numerous uh, publications and he has written the possibility of prayer finding stillness with god in a restless world and co-edited what god and three persons unity of essence distinction of persons and implications for life and he has also authored this most recent book is the secret place of thunder and without any further wait here is our conversation John, it is good to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and you know, just as we're getting started, you know, one of the places that I normally like to begin these types of conversations is I I love asking about the story behind um, behind works of art. And so, you know, you've written this book, The Secret Place of Thunder, and I would just love to hear kind of the origin story for you of what made you want to write this book what uh what got you interested in this subject and kind of how that came to be yeah uh well there's probably um two sides to it um in 2015-2016 went through a long season of uh some, some pretty dark depression more than i'd ever experienced uh personally um and previously in my life and it was pretty heavy. Um, 
kind of coming at me in a few different ways. And um, I remember being really confused uh, and feeling very uh, separated. And that sounds like a severe word. I don't mean eternally, but just feeling very separate from God even though I've been pressing in and uh, reaching for him. Um, and I remember one morning, you know, it, was, it was probably about 18 months that I experienced that. Um, and it was a really difficult season. I remember one morning, it was, uh, I know the date, it was October 16th. And I was reading the Psalm 81. And um, Psalm 81 is about... Uh, um, the Lord declaring to Israel, I delivered you uh, from e uh, Egyptian slavery. Uh, I heard your cries. I heard your I heard your voices in the secret place of thunder, which is where the title obviously comes from. Yeah. And um, at the end of that verse, it says, if you know, he, he's telling them to resist idols. And if you would just open your mouth wide, I would fill it. And I remember just being filled with so much longing. Um, I didn't exactly even know what that still, I mean, that's a, it's a mysterious imagery, but it did just stir a lot of longing in me. And I just remember asking the Lord, I just want that. I want, I'm, I'm as much as I know how spiritually I want to open my mouth wide that you would fill it. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm not a crazy charismatic but um, in that moment, I just, I felt the Lord really met me. Um, and the best way I can describe it, I just felt like a, a pretty heavy weight. Um, didn't, and I didn't want it to end. And I, you know, there's those weird moments where you feel like, we hey, don't move. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but just feeling deeply satisfied in the Lord and really thankful. Um, it didn't, uh, take away my depression, but it did sort of function like a, a witness in the wilderness that the Lord wasn't, um, wasn't absent. He was present with me. Um, he wasn't just asking me to go through the wilderness. He was walking through the wilderness with me. Um, and that has just sort of stuck with me. I think I, I probably go through regular cycles of, some emotional darkness and that has been just like a light for me to rem to remember um something to remember back to and and trust in those seasons so that's one place and the other part of that story is just at the beginning of uh the pandemic um people are put into hiding especially here in new york we we all just went um went home and Midtown and downtown Manhattan just emptied out. And it stirred, I think, an insecurity and anxiety in people that their supervisors and coworkers weren't seeing them. Mm -hmm. And they were fearful of losing their value to people who weren't seeing them. So they're, you know, they're turning projects that weren't they weren't asked for on top of projects that were being asked for. And mm -hmm. so there, I think there's something under that. Um, that they were living primarily in a world that is seen and displayed. That's where they were finding a lot of value and security. And what I had witnessed and experienced is the Lord providing a kind of security that they were longing for in the outward displays of performances. I had experienced in very secret, hidden places where I was already feeling very disoriented and confused, but the Lord met me there rather than somewhere outwardly and performatively. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. That does make sense. And that's like, you talk about like performative individualism for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to kind of yeah. like un unpack that term? Cause I, you know, going through the book, it's such, um, it just gives us language to kind of what we experience day in and day out. It seems like. Yeah. Um, well, I think it sort of stems out of um, what uh, Robert Bella, he's got a book from, he's a sociologist. He's got a book called habits of the heart. And he's got this term um, called expressive individualism. 
-hmm. basically that we in the modern American, especially Western world, um, primarily uh, shape our priorities around our, our inner wants and desires. Um, we shape our identity. Identity formation is built around uh, what we are longing for, what we're desiring, rather than anything outside of our life, whether it's God or community or institutions, but we're shaped primarily by who we are. So that is primarily the thing that shapes our priorities and values. And so that that leads into, you know, we want to curate our own identity before the world. We uh, want to express ourselves, whether it's sexually or financially, <clears throat> in our vocationally. Um, and our culture wants to affirm all of those things, wants to affirm that you are free to be you. You're free to express yourself, to curate your own identity, to shape who who you want to be. It's that is the the modern ethic in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, the The tension we're feeling is is that on one hand we're hearing that message: you can be who you want to be, curate your own identity, um, uh, shape your own meaning. At the other end, if our expression of our identity or wants and desires doesn't fit a certain narrative or expressed in certain ways, um, then it's ignored, um, dismissed, or, you know, the word canceled. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, there's there, there's a line that I say that I think is a fairly important uh, message is that we we want to be both loved and um, we want to be affirmed, um, or sorry, we want to be ourselves and we want to be loved, but our world will rarely give us both. So we'll, we'll either um, uh, be ourselves, and oftentimes if we're just ourselves and not caring what the world thinks, you know, there's a narrative in the world that says if you forget about trying to prove yourself to the world, then the world will realize that they can't live without you. Well, actually, if you don't care about what anyone thinks, generally speaking, the world will just forget about you and ignore you. And that's a that's a terrible existence um, because we want to be loved at the same time. Um, and oftentimes what we find is in order to be loved in this world, we need to perform our desires. We need to perform uh our expressive individualism, but it needs to be shaped by uh, a cultural narrative that doesn't come from our inner hearts, our inner lives. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's deeply troubling. I mean, we're, this is why we're struggling with deep levels of depression, um, self-harm in ways that we haven't in previous, previous generations. Um, does that answer your question? Does that, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. And, you know, going through your book, that that idea of um, performative individualism, like I resonated with it so strongly because like that's the tension that I feel uh, personally, like even mm. just with this podcast as well, of mm. like mm-hmm. wanting it to do well and like believing in the message of it. But I like, but not wanting it to turn into something like ugly, if that makes sense or like, yeah. you know, um, promoting it. Yeah. And like, I, I imagine that you've probably had to, I mean, you've, you've written this book too. And mm-hmm. I imagine like at some level, you probably had to wrestle through that as well. And like, I would just love to hear, you know, just kind of like what that wrestling looks yeah. like for you in terms of creating stuff and, um, yeah. and, you know, putting out good work and letting it impact people and even letting God use it. Um, while at the same time doing that in a healthy way. Yeah, it is an awkward thing. Um, As most publishers are are wanting you to partner in the self-promotion or the promotion of the book. Um, It just makes it very awkward when the whole book is about how you resist (laughs) performance. Yeah. I think there is a healthy way to think about it, though. And, And I think Jesus helps us in the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount is is where I think I, I get a lot of the theological girding 
in this project where Jesus tells us to resist performing our righteousness before others, but to really work out your life in secret with the Father. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be a, a, a grounding, a sense of who you are um, in the Father, what he sees. And um, it's it's trying to pattern that sort of life that Jesus had where, you know, at the beginning of the gospel of John, Jesus is garnering this following and um, he, he's people are pretty wowed by his signs and wonders. And it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to man because he knew what was in them. And I think it's less talking about like, well, because man is sinful and flaky. That's true. <laughs> Um, but I think it's primarily talking that Jesus knew where, where to find his identity, his sense of self-worth. It's not going to be in the pinnacle of everyone's affirmation that you really are the Messiah. You really are the King. It's, he found his identity and sense of worth and sense of self in the words of the father that says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And if he's living off that message, you know, he's not dependent upon what the crowds are thinking. So because of that, he was able to, at the end of the Gospel of John, of course, when the crowds are no longer glorifying his name, but calling for his crucifixion, he didn't fall apart, Mm -hmm. right? He he wasn't um, emotionally um, tossed to and fro. Uh, He was, as uh, the book of Isaiah says, uh, his face was set like flint. And um, I think in some sense, if that's true, if that's kind of where you find your your sense of self and the words of the Father, because we have that same uh, word from the Father in Christ, that we're his beloved daughters and sons and whom he's well pleased. And if we can live off that identity, then we don't have to worry so much about letting our light shine like Jesus talks about in the same uh, sermon before others so that they might see your good deeds and glorify not you, but the, the father in heaven. So, you know, in that same sermon, Jesus says, don't work out your righteousness or don't work, don't do your works of righteousness before others so that they might see you um, and get a reward. And then another place he says, hey, don't hide your light. Let it shine uh, so that they'll see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. It's not a contradiction, Mm -hmm. but you do have to think about it. And Jesus is calling you, hey, don't find your sense of self in what you get from others when they see you give to the poor when they see you pray uh, articulate theological words in your public prayers, or when they see you fast, you know, um, don't, don't build your sense of self and who you are, build your sense of self and who you are with the father and the secret so that when people do see you, they're not glorifying you primarily, they're glorifying, they're seeing something about God in you. And, um, so I, I think the work is, for me personally, in yeah. promoting the book, uh, am, am, am I following Jesus in resisting handing my sense of self to what others might be thinking about me in this book or in my preaching or whatever public identity I have with people? Because um, that's going to be tossed to and fro. and. Oh. Um, so yeah do you have any are there any like indicators for you that help you know like okay i I think i'm getting this right or hey i i think i i could be getting this wrong in terms of that that balance or that tension i'm sure there's all kinds of things um my wife's a really great indicator um she she can smell a fake from like a mile away and so I think when she's sensing performance, she can kind of, yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't put up with that. And so she's a good partner in that. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think if I'm struggling with anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, 
I think that's, you know, and I, anxiety is a, is a strange animal. Um, I think this is just true for how it shows up in my life. Mm-hmm. Anxiety generally shows up with me when I am experiencing a level of fragility because I have based too much of my sense of well-being uh, and other people's view of me. Mm-hmm. So um, Bono from YouTube just wrote a, a memoir, right? Mm-hmm. And he says somewhere in there, uh, there's something wrong with me when I don't feel normal until I hear 20,000 people shouting my name. Now, for the most part, none of us are going to have 20,000 people sharing the name. But all of us are going to have something which I'm not going to feel normal until I hear my supervisor say this about me. I'm not going to feel normal until I experience this kind of affirmation or this kind of sense from others that that I'm doing okay, that that I have my life together. Um, And I, I... think we can all discern at some level when that's beginning to happen that I, until those certain things are happening, I'm, I'm not feeling normal. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for definitely for people in any kind of spiritual leadership, whether it's from leading a small group in a church community to um, being in some sort of spiritual leadership at a church uh, podcasts um, or some kind of public ministry, there's always going to be some kind of draw towards mm-hmm. um, making some level of affirmation what makes me allows me to feel normal about myself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that makes so that makes so much sense. And like you you mentioned earlier, whether it be um, in our sexuality or even with uh, financially mm-hmm. as well, like you think about it, and it's like. Well, I'll be normal when, you know, I find the mm-hmm. right person or I get married or I get divorced yep. or I get this possession or I have this much money saved up. Yep. Um, yeah, no, it, it really does make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, you know, I'd love to um, touch on more of like what, um, like what you see throughout scripture of how Jesus handles this tension of being amongst the crowd mm. and doing, you know, public ministry yeah. while at the same time retreating. And I love, and you can even touch on this too. Like, I love the word that you say of just like the hiddenness in it as well. Um, yeah. I just love to hear yeah. um, more about how you see Jesus handling that throughout scripture. Yeah. He uses all kinds of imagery. The biggest one is seeds. He uses a lot of kind yeah. of seed language. Um, and for the most part, seeds, as long as they're in seed form, they're hidden. And, um, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God being like a seed. Um, the, uh, the, the faith of one who participates in the kingdom is like a seed and, um, they're buried and hidden and, that can be hard because oftentimes what Jesus is trying to get us to grasp is your faith and the kingdom is not the big splashy stuff in the world that, that it's some sort of frame of reference of making a difference or grabbing attention. Um, the, the kingdom of God is not grabby. It's, it's growy <laughs> in an or- organic sense. It's, slow and it it has a process and you know when you put a seed and jesus used the imagery of a of a mustard seed and if you go to our kitchen go to our spice cabinet there's uh, a little jar of mustard seeds and they're real small they're real small and you know if you put it in your hand and you go outside and you accidentally drop it you're not gonna find it I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's really small on the ground. And if you, especially if you bury it, there's no chance of you finding it again. And for the most part, because um, when, when we are hidden, we're basically 
uh, as good as dead, basically, for our world. So when we experience, and I think Jesus sort of couples this, when we experience cultural or social diminishment, um, it feels like death because we're, we're not, we're not being seen. Maybe we're being ignored or maybe we're being slandered. Sometimes that those two are just as bad. Um, and, um, that can feel hidden. That can feel, um, like you're invisible, feel alienating. But what Jesus seems to think is that sort of, uh, dormancy under the ground, in buried like a seed is a fruitful dormancy, especially when it's coupled with uh, a participation in the life of Jesus. So the way Jesus resisted uh, the performative life, for us to resist that performative life and experience being ignored, experiencing being overlooked, that can be hard and lonely and alienating but the Bible describes that as like a fruitful dormancy, like a seed that is buried in the ground and it can't actually be what it's supposed to be until it's buried in the ground and dead, right? Jesus is like, unless it goes into the ground, it's just alone. In other words, it's just going to be a seed that never becomes what it's supposed to be. And if we never resist that performative element in this world, and participate in that more hidden rhythm of life. I'm not talking about going away to the desert and um, being a hermit. I'm just talking about resisting finding your sense of self and uh, the good life in the performative matters of this world. We'll never act if we don't resist that. We'll never actually become what Christ has called us to be, or what God has made us to be in Christ. We'll, we'll always be missing out on that. We'll always have a more diminished sense of who we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Jesus, I think, is giving us, this is the good news behind this, is that he's giving us a vision of what spiritual flourishing and growth looks like, even when we're experiencing cultural and social diminishment. Mm-hmm. And that can be hard because we're feeling death on one side and it really does feel like death. I I don't want to like underestimate when Jesus says to people who want to follow him, do you know what you're asking for? It's like trying to follow a homeless man. It's like uh, picking up a electric chair and going to the, uh, going and going and dying and picking up your cross. It's, mm-hmm. it's following me. Um, it's a death life and it feels like death. And so Jesus doesn't want to underestimate that the impact of that. But at the same time, while we're experiencing death over here, we're experiencing life over here. In fact, we can't feel life over here until this begins to be more like death in this world. Um, so it's a hopeful image, but um, it's like everything with Jesus. It's it's a cross before the crown. It's you know humility before glorification, and um, this I think just follows in that pattern as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I I can imagine that you know maybe I don't know maybe someone's listening uh, who is thinking this. But at some point, we probably are going to encounter somebody who's like, you know, I just don't know if I want to deal with that death aspect of it. Um, And, you know, I know that you touched on part of it, but can you kind of tease out just like the vision of the life, like of why that's important? Like in the vision of the life that we experience or can experience through Jesus, through that death and denial of self. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important to grasp it, um, especially like I um, I minister in a church that has a lot of young professionals who are in their twenties and thirties, who so far probably in their life have not experienced many doors close on them. 
Um, they've probably, you know, they're, they've come to Manhattan. Um, they're working at some bank or working in some uh, financial institution or educational institution. Um, and they're there because in whatever setting they were in, in Ohio, they were at the top of whatever they were in. Um, they were the smartest and most important person in most rooms that they walk into. Mm-hmm. And then they've come to New York and they're suddenly in every room, they're the 14th most important and smartest person. And, um, and that can be disorienting and confusing. And the impulses is like, all right, um, how do I make myself seen? How do I make my, how, how do I perform and live in such a way that people can't ignore me here? Because yeah. <laughs> you're going to be ignored. So I think there's, um, some like uh, hyper and intensified Petri dish in some of our contexts that um, maybe shine a spotlight, but really it's, um, it shows up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's the case in every, not just every industry, but in every family context and every relationships and every, there, there's going to be a way in which I'm going to say, either I can be myself and trust that God is going to walk with me in seasons of where I'm experiencing attention and love and adoration, or I'm being called to walk a wilderness of the cross. And um, I'm not going to perform my way out of the wilderness. That was the one thing. I do think there's something about experiencing depression is that um, you can't perform your way out of being depressed. Mm-hmm. Um you can't um, you can't take shortcuts out of shame. I, there's just there's just no way out of those things. Mm-hmm. And you know, Henri Nouwen uh, says sometimes it takes a lot of humiliation for just a little bit of humility. And I think the Lord, if He loves us, can put put us in contexts and settings that sort of take away any mechanism. Uh, that allows us to reach for uh, performance. And, and I say that in that, I, I mentioned that season of depression in the book, and I think that was the one grace of that season. I'm sure there's tons of graces in that season, but one of the graces was um, I had experienced slander and my reputation with people that I actually really cared about was taken from me Mm -hmm. and um and so there there are certain things that i would normally reach for in order to give people the sense that i'm doing okay that i've got it together and i didn't have those and in some ways it was a kind of undiluted and unfiltered experience of who i'm trying to be apart from christ and uh, no more cushion, no more buffer from that. Um, but in, to get back to your original question, um, the reason why I think it's really important is that Jesus is envisioning that path as the good life, which is in contrast to how our, our culture envisions the good life, which is if you experience diminishment, financially, sexually, in beauty, um, whatever it might be. If you experience diminishment, that's as good as a terminal death. Mm-hmm. That's that's the end of your life, or at least a good one. Mm-hmm. And Jesus has a vision for um, a life that is the good life in seasons of highs or in seasons of pretty severe diminishment. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is a really hopeful thing for us, but it's one that we have to be obedient to and say yes to and resist um, a cultural narrative um, that says any kind of diminishment on those things is a, is a death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, another aspect of this that just made me think about it in a new way is um you know, sometimes, you know, this conversation can be framed in terms of um, thinking about what other people think of us, 
for you know what the general public think about us. Yeah. But one of the things that I love is that you talk about the aspect of sometimes just what we think about ourselves too, and that we're honestly tr- we're yeah. trying to yeah. impress ourselves. Can you unpack that aspect of it? Because again, it's so true, but yet it's something that just doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Yeah. But I think, G- and I think it's important here that Jesus points that when he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of working out your righteousness, whether it's praying in public, fasting in public, or giving to the poor in public, he then says, don't even let your right hand know what the left hand is doing. Um, Dale Bruner talks about like, there should be no outer trumpets and no inner trumpets. Mm-hmm. in in your life with the father and that's hard because we want to be able to even discern with ourselves am i doing okay um yeah and am, am i we can be there, there's a way of discerning with ourselves that's healthy um trying to give some uh, assessment of am I walking with Jesus of the things that I need to repent of, right? That healthy um, looking at ourselves and having a self-awareness. But there's a there's an inward turn that doesn't look at ourselves through the grid of how our Father looks at us, right? So that even when we're thinking about ourselves and not even caring about what the world thinks, but even when we're thinking about ourselves, it still has to be through the filter of that secret place with the Father. Because the mm-hmm. Father has a kind of word for us that's based on a number of things. It is based on our behavior, how we've lived, what we think of ourselves, what we think of Him. But it also it's through the filter of who Jesus is and who are we in Christ. And it's also through the filter of who we're going to be when the work of transformation is over and the Lord has made us into something beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, like C.S. Lewis has that um, illustration in one of his books. Um, when you think about your neighbor, uh, if you knew who they will be in glory, you would be tempted to worship them because they're going to be beautiful. They're going to be, they're going to be like a, what we would think of as a God, they, they won't be God, but they'll, they'll be glorified. And in some ways we're, we're supposed to treat everyone in that end. What would they be like if they were glorified? Cause that's, that's in some ways how the father is treating us right now. He does. He's, he's not blind to our faults and our um, flaws and our sins, he died for those things. He's very much aware. Um, he sent his son for those things. He's very much aware of those sins. But he's also seeing us through, um, you know, our sins. He no longer looks at our sins as just a blunt vision. He looks at them through the cross of Jesus. And he looks at us through our, our glorified. That's who he's, who he's going to remake us into being. Um, and so that, in some ways, we, we ought to think of ourselves through that filter. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a saving grace because I imagine that most people's turmoil is something between the struggle with people. Do you think I'm doing okay? And am I doing okay? <laughs> this constant trumpets out, trumpets in and trying to scramble through that anxiety. And Jesus just wants to relieve us from that. Like there's a kind of be free, you know, the, the father, the father knows who you are. He loves you. You're a beloved and he's going to remake you and transform you into something beautiful. And you ought to see yourself through that filter. But, you know, we have our own uh, shame and fear and anxiety. That's informing how we view ourselves. We have our cultural narratives that's informing how we view ourselves. And um, so it's a battle. I, I think it's some intentional work on untangling those things and trying to listen to the Father. You know, in pastoral counseling, when I'm working with someone who had a really, really difficult relationship with their parents, and maybe specifically even their father, and that has just hindered 
their relationship with God. It just, they can't think about God in any way other than through the filter of the father. Um, the task, and it's not just telling them to do it, but the task is how do you lead that person from a, going from only being able to experience God through that filter of their father to really allowing God speaking for himself, you know, like getting the voice of your earthly father and his actions out of the way and allowing God to speak for himself. This is who I really think you are. This is, this is what I think of you. This is what, um, this is how I am acting towards you. This is my kindness. This is my mercy. Um, and that's the hard work of untangling that. But we also have like cultural narratives um, that are shaping the way we think about ourselves and shaping the way we think about God and what is the good life with God. So it's kind of trying to slowly untangle, um, die to, clean out, reform uh, how we've been shaped. Mm-hmm. What do you think is one of the cultural narratives, either like in general that you see like affecting, you know, you or me or just people in general, or even around mm-hmm. God that you see that is shaping us? Yeah, um, I was in a pastoral counseling situation. The young man who's trying to work out his sexuality and he's trying to be faithful uh, to Jesus with his sexuality. He's trying to be faithful to a biblical sexual ethic. And we've been talking and wrestling with that for a long time, one-on-one. And um, one one day, one meeting, he came, and he was kind of ready with something. And he said, um, well, I, and he was a, a grad student at one of the universities here. And he says, I've been seeing my um, university therapist, and which is fine. That he wasn't like cheating on me or something. It was fine that he'd seen his therapist. Um, but he said, um, and he, he didn't, I think he knew the answer to this, but he felt the weight of it. And um, he said, my therapist told me that if I don't begin to walk more truthfully, uh, or maybe she used the word, if you don't begin to walk more authentically mm-hmm. uh, with your sexuality, you'll never experience uh, mature identity formation and you'll never be whole. Mm. Now that's an interesting, <clears throat> which wasn't surprising, but in reflecting on how, how am I, what am I, what am I combating there? I'm, com- I'm combating that this young man will never be whole. He'll never experience mature identity formation until he begins to walk more truthfully in his sexual desires. Mm -hmm. And um, that's quite a leap from, let's say, the 50s, where my grandfather was a uh, farmer in the middle of Missouri, Right, grew up on a farm, small town, midwestern town. And uh, if you would have gone up to him and said, John, his name is John too. Um, John, you will never experience wholeness until you begin to walk more truthfully in your sexuality. You have no idea what you're talking about. Or if he did know, know what I was talking about, he would just sort of think that's crazy. That's not a way to think about wholeness. That's not a way to think about maturity. Um, but now our culture has begun to think about, and it, and it is driven primarily through sexual freedom, um, that you, you're never actually going to experience wholeness. You're never ex, uh, experience a kind of maturity in your identity until you begin to walk more freely sexually. I think that's probably true, but you know, in expressed differently through... Um, Consumer freedom, so both financial consumer freedom, being able to spend as much money whenever on whatever you want, and being able to have sexual freedom. Um, those two things—that's probably maybe like the conservative vital and the the progressive vital. Yeah. 
um, being able to walk freely as a consumer or being able to walk freely as um, sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's actually uh, what's interesting. There's a, a, a columnist for Teen Vogue and she just wrote a book uh, on um, sexuality. Oh, it's, it's, it, the subtitle is The Unfinished Revolution and I cannot remember um well anyway um and she has a a a, a pretty complex name but she's a columnist for teen vogue uh and she just wrote a book on sexual freedom and she does not have um a new testament sexual ethic she actually thinks marriage is a uh, pretty troubling institution and she she argues for a um uh, ethical non-monogamy in her book but anyway um she does say near the end of the book when she talks about her own struggles with sexual desire she goes through a see and she's younger than me so i'm 41 and i think she's in her mid-30s mm-hmm. she went through a season of not experiencing much desire for sex but what do you do with someone or what do you do in a in a world where wholeness is being able to explore sexually. That's what wholeness mm-hmm. means. And, and she began to, I think, have a, a few honest moments and then she explained it away, but like a like pulled back the curtain a little bit and said, just in talking to young women that in a world that says you'll never be whole sexually, or you'll never be whole unless you experience sexual freedom the main emotions that are coming to the surface are, are guilt and shame because a lot of young women are not feeling like I I don't feel as sexual as that sexual hero who says I need to be living this way or being, I I don't feel that uh, sexually excited or adventurous or exploratory, or I I want to have one person who's devoted to me that, uh, and will I not be whole? Will that keep me? Am I not? Will I not experience mature identity formation? So there's fear and guilt uh, when they're not able to live up to like the the sexual expectations of our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more of the shadow side of that vision of what wholeness looks like, and that's really a tough narrative to fight um, because it is is pressing towards you know, the, the view that absolute freedom is what's going to give you um, happiness and and that's a good life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just as, um, you know, just as, you know, we're moving towards the end of our, our conversation. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we're going to find ourselves in that season of hiddenness either by choice or sometimes it is, uh, Mm shockingly forced upon us sometimes too mm-hmm. i'd love to hear whether it be yeah. your own life you know through studying scripture or even just looking throughout history or other people's lives what are some of the things that you have noticed you know practices disciplines whatever you want to call them that have helped you or that you've seen help other people during that season yeah that's a great question um i do think we're, we're coming up on the season of lent and i don't know when this will air, it might be after Lent, mm-hmm. but in, right now Lent is coming. And yeah. that's been a, a sort of normal way in which people have thought about wilderness, right? The, whether it's the wilderness wanderings or uh, of Israel or the wilderness temptations of Jesus. And um, thought about fasting or thought about um, being put aside. Um, and, uh, What's interesting in those moments, there, there is nothing beautiful, uh, nothing to display in those seasons of, of wilderness wanderings. And uh, I think there are ways in which you can practice those wilderness elements. So I, I don't think of the New Testament, even though there have been faithful Christians throughout history who 
gone out to the wilderness and stayed there for long seasons of time. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's um, what obedience necessarily uh, only looks like. But I do think when, when you're thinking about um, the wilderness uh, themes in scripture, there is something that's both exposing. So if you think about all of the wilderness wanderings and te- uh, temptations of Israel, uh, especially like in the book of Numbers, what is being brought to the surface mm-hmm. uh, in the wilderness? What kind of, you know, there's a, I forgot where uh, the, the name of the place that it's called in the big, first, I don't know, 10 chapters of Numbers, where they're asking for meat and God gives meat. And the first people who sink their teeth into the meat are, are given a plague. And the place of that plague is called craving. Like what is, what is brought out like to the surface in a wilderness, what thirsts, what hungers, what desires, what idols, you know, when, when they were uh, creating the uh, golden calf, what, it, it surely wasn't a beautiful thing, right? It, they just took off all their earrings, threw in the fire and tried to mold and jerry-rig something beautiful or something to worship, right? It didn't have to be beautiful. It just had to be theirs. It had to be a God on their terms. What kind of idols, um, what kind of things do we make space for in the wilderness? And so I think there are certain things like um, practicing silence um or maybe a first practice is just solitude being alone for even if it's just like 30 minutes um and sitting with the lord Uh, maybe it's just sitting with a psalm and just sitting with the lord not doing much activity not trying to perform not to analyze the psalm just sit with the psalm and be with the lord um or a deeper part of that practice is just the practice of silence of just Mm -hmm. sitting quietly with the Lord. What's interesting about silence and solitude, especially if you're not used to it, what happens is um, all the things that we're good at stuffing down and keeping quiet come to the surface. So all the ghosts and goblins (laughs) um, that we're used to keeping at bay and keeping still are, are coming to the surface, which is generally our anxieties and fears. And those are opportunities um, to bring to the Lord. Uh, these are things I'm afraid of. These are things that I'm anxious about. These are the things that probably control me more than I think. But I do think in, in some of those wilderness practices, they're um, what I call in the book is like small crucifying steps towards um, more hidden life being being more okay in quiet with Jesus, being more okay in hidden places. Um, and that just might also mean going and serving the poor and not posting on Instagram. It's something that's simple as yeah. that, right? Going to a, a, a soup kitchen or shelter and spending time uh, w- with with needy people. There's, there's a woman in our church who... Uh, for the last few years has been doing Bible studies for um, a homeless shelter that aims primarily um, to the the mentally handicapped. I had no idea she was doing this. She's been doing it for years. And, um, you know, my impulse was sort of like, well, let's like bring you up in stage and, and allow you to tell stories and what's God been doing in those moments. And, and she said to me, she's like, Oh, this is just like, this is between me and Jesus. And I'm glad that, you know, and you can pray for me because it's hard. Sometimes I don't really always know how to minister to the mentally handicapped, but um, it's like one of those things where she's, that is probably more shaping than most things she's doing in her life, right? She's doing quiet, uh, unseen, hidden work for people that nobody cares about, right? Mm-hmm. Not only are they homeless, they have nothing to contribute um, intellectually as far as the world is concerned. And um, 
she gives a lot of intellectual and emotional energy for them. And it's a cost. It's costly. She's dying each time, right? She does it. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, there's probably just deep wells of spiritual maturity and depth there that somewhere down the line, um, people will experience that fruit in their life. That's kind of, that's a mustard seed kind of life that's going to bear okay. fruit. Uh, and people will experience rest in her. Um, so I, I, you know, those are the small heroes um, and small practices that I think are, are really important for us as Christians to walk through. Mm -hmm. You know, that got me thinking, uh, what, how do you know whenever something, how do you know when to share something that you feel like God is doing in your life versus just what you were said? Like, no, I think this, like, is it just like listening to the spirit or, or I just love your thoughts on how do you discern between the two? I don't know. <laughs> I think there is something in her yeah, that found a really deep well of satisfaction with Jesus and mm -hmm. that like, I, I'm not getting satisfaction in knowing that someone else knows mm -hmm. about this, but I'm getting, I'm, finally getting to the point where I'm getting satisfaction of just being where I'm supposed to be, where I'm being obedient to the Lord's calling. And I found joy there. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want to lose that joy. I don't want it to get diminished by being brought up on stage. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like we, we celebrate yeah. people who are serving in our city and we want to promote that because more people will begin to participate than they do. But also like there's something to the fact that, we're just trusting that the fruit of her life will be enough, be big enough of a witness. And um, so I don't know, but I, I imagine there's some sort of discernment that there is, there's been more pleasure found with God in that moment. than there is in experiencing the applause and affirmation of her neighbors or, co or her peers. And that, and that's probably um, has taken some, uh, some work on her, on her behalf. Well, I know that there's a lot of other things that we could talk about in the book, but I always love just asking, is there anything just top of mind, you know, anything that we've talked about or anything in the book um, that you just want to mention before we wrap up our conversation? Um, I, I do think there's probably, uh, just to reemphasize, um, you know, Jesus is with his disciples in um, Matthew 11, I think, and the coming back from a really successful um, ministry uh, season. The devils were cast out and the sick was healed and people heard the gospel. And Jesus congratulated them and said, um, I saw Satan fall down, you know, from heaven. And, uh, you know, which is a great feedback. I've never got that kind of sermon feedback before. Um, <laughs> that would be but, quite uh, the feedback to get. Would that, would that be amazing? Um, but he said, rejoice not that um, the devils obey you or, or the, um, the evil spirits obey you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And it's interesting that before that successful ministry the uh, book of mark and matthew talks about a season where they couldn't cast out a demon especially one of a son who uh jesus says yeah just it can't be cast out without you know prayer and fasting just a season of humiliation you know <laughs> yeah. uh and then season of uh of success and jesus seems to say you, you are not who you are when you're in a season of failure and you are not who you are in a season of success. You are who you are because rejoice, your name is written in heaven, you know? And so that, that is really kind of the hope of the book is to find that kind of spiritual health. It's not like a balancing act. I almost said balance, but 
don't think this is balanced Christian spirituality. I think this is realistic spirituality in that if you try to find who you are in success, or if you kind of like in the drip can of finding who you are and I'm just a, I'm, I'm a loser. I, I can't do anything that's impressive. Like you're just, you're never going to feel, have a stable identity. You're never going to feel okay. You're never going to feel like um, there's any endurance in you. If some, some way you're able to take some small crucifying steps towards ignoring those two visions of the good life or visions of life and listening to what the father has to say about you in the secret place. Um, I think there's a lot of spiritual flourishing there. Um, there's a kind of vibrancy and fruitfulness. Um, there's something to, to aim towards. What's that idea? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, John, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, the secret place of thunder and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Um, I guess I ever know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, great. Well, thank you so much just for the wonderful conversation and just thanks for doing the work and for being on the podcast today. Oh, thanks, Gail. I appreciate it. You know, just as I was reflecting on this conversation and thinking about this conversation, just this idea that greatness is built in the moments that don't require greatness came to mind. And it's the idea that, you know, at some point in our lives, we are going to have moments which require greatness from us. They're going to require an extraordinary response. But those great moments or those great responses are built in the everyday moments that maybe don't really seem to matter that much. You know, I think about, you know, sports is an easy analogy to think about this with or, or any, any type of competitive competition. That it's never in the middle of the competition. Like, you don't just show up to the game and you are great. You have to prepare for it. It's built in the moments that nobody sees. It's built in the moments to where you're alone. It's built in the moments to where it just feels very lonely and it feels like nobody else maybe understands you or wants it as bad as you. And I think that's the same place for building our character and, you know, becoming you know, for me, I would say that, that that also means becoming the person that God created you to be. And that it's it's not built necessarily in the in the big moments. Yes, those do happen, but they're built in the everyday. And it just becomes another moment. And you just respond out of who you are, out of who the person that you became. And you respond and you handle it based not based on what type of situation you're in, whether or not you're in a a moment of greatness or a moment of just whether you're in a moment of hmm, I, can't, I can't really think of the word for but just a normal moment a normal everyday moment you don't respond based on what the moment is you respond on who you based on who you are and so I think that's probably the biggest thing that I think about this and hopefully that's encouraging. Hopefully this conversation is encouraging because we all go through moments like this from time to time. And, you know, they're always longer than what we want them to be. And that sometimes that in itself makes it difficult because you're on month 11 and you were hoping that you would be done by day 11. But be encouraged because the work will pay off. You will become that person. It just takes time. 
And so that's what I'm thinking about from this. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my Substack to where I share all the different things to where I'm learning from. And, you know, subscribe to the podcast as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thanks to John for being on this podcast and for such a great conversation and for his vulnerability as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.